Welcome back for the next installment of the Sports Pro Stream Time podcast. I'm joined once again, as always, by our CEO at Sports Pro, Nick Meacham. Nick, I'm not sure if you saw last night the the brutality that went down with Will Smith. Um, I certainly hope, as the host, I don't do anything to that level that's going to get you to smack me in the face. Yeah, well, uh, well, look, lucky we're doing this in a virtual sense. And plus, I'm Australian, so there's very little that you can do to offend me that much that's going to make me have that sort of reaction. But uh, yeah, some some little bit of entertainment to make the Academy Awards, you know, the, the, the hot topic for on everyone's lips right now. Interestingly, Nick, one of the stories I didn't tell when we were at the OTT USA conference, when you and I were doing the kickoff session on day two, uh, there was a fan that came up to us and she said, Oh, are you the the Chris and Nick that do the the Stream Time podcast? And I was like, Yeah, that's us. She's like, Oh, it's so lovely to finally be able to to meet you guys. She said, I hear your voices, but I've never seen you before. So it's nice to be able to finally put you know faces to the names. And in the back of my head, unlike the Academy Awards, I'm sitting there thinking, Yeah, we've definitely got faces for radio. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't have faces for the Academy Awards. That that's for sure. We'll stick to behind the uh, behind the mics for for the moment. But nice to get a recognition, and maybe they they could hear your dulcet tones echoing across the conference floor, and that's what drew her uh, to you. But uh, yeah, good to get feedback like that from people, particularly randoms, if they, especially if they don't know what you even look like. Now, we can't just focus on our, on our looks, Nick, although I, I think we're both better looking than we perhaps give ourselves credit for. But, you know, moving into the world of business, there was a, a, a news story that was reported last week that now appears to be confirmed, and that is that the investment group, private equity group, CVC, has now confirmed a $1.6 billion investment in Ligue which is looking for a 13% stake in the company that's going to be responsible for selling those broadcast rights. Uh, CVC, this is not the first time that we've we've spoken about about them here on the Streamtime podcast just the other week uh, with Mota at Volleyball World. You guys spoke a little bit about their investment, but they've also recently done deals with La Liga as well. And perhaps, Nick, just, just give us a couple uh, you know, thoughts that you have you know, along this recent news as well as some of the other things that have gone on with CVC from an investment perspective within sports. Yeah, absolutely. So Ligue, Ligue 1, the, the French, the top football league in France, uh, has had a bit of a challenging run over the last couple of years with their major media rights, domestic media rights deal falling through with, I think it was Media Pro, and it ended up they had to take a cut price deal with Amazon to to take on the live uh, live matches to be broadcast in France. Uh, and what that really meant is there was a huge cash gap that was left after this, what was expected to be record revenues being created off media rights deals. So as a result of that, there's obviously a bit of a gap there that the clubs and the league are really trying to fill. And again, we've seen similar in La Liga, where a deal's been agreed. We've seen other deals from CVC with Premiership Rugby and Six Nations and Volleyball World, as you mentioned. They all, all those deals have a slightly different sort of nuance to them. You know, for example, the La Liga deal, which if I remember correctly, was about $2 billion euros um, for about eight percent of the media and sponsorship rights no i think it might have been just the media rights actually uh for for la liga and that is for basically the media rights over the next 50 years it's almost a bit like a loan a guaranteed loan so even if the media rights drop in value over the next 50 years 
CVC is actually going to profit from that deal. It's an incredible deal for CVC. Uh, but they, they get guaranteed money in their pockets, and that money has to be in the league deal, has to be used to invest into infrastructure and innovation basically in the clubs. And only up to 15% of that, that cash injection by the clubs can be used for players and, and for signings. The rest has to be used to actually develop uh, the league and develop the teams. The interesting part of the La Liga deal mainly is that uh, clubs like Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, uh, and Barcelona, and Athletic Bilbao did not stay in that deal. They actually kept out of that deal. So they haven't got the whole sort of contingent of Spanish clubs involved with that. Whereas in this this League Un deal, they, they do have all the clubs. And actually, PSG really benefits out of this deal the most, where it's the reports are that they get something like 30% uh, of the media rights moving forward in this new arrangement, whereas previously, combined with Olympic Marseille, they were only getting up to 10% combined. So PSG are massive winners out of this agreement if the reports are accurate. And there were something like 10 private equity firms in the running for these league and rights uh, or this league and commercial uh, private equity investment so yeah really interesting i guess to see like this this feels and seems like from the reporting that it's more of a, a bona fide investment in a commercial business and a real league-wide deal that benefits the top clubs whereas the la liga deal which is the one it's going to be compared to most often is is constructed quite differently so for me, Nick, like I'll be candid, you know, private equity is something uh, I'm trying to learn more about. It's something I'm trying to become more knowledgeable about, but it's still something that's a bit, uh, a bit foreign to me as I work through it. So you know, I guess on a more top level holistic approach, what is it with private equity within sports? Why are they so interested in sports? And you know, what's some of the wider impact that you know we could potentially see with private equity getting involved within sports? Well. We always hear that sports is the most exciting um, industry to be involved with. So there's probably a little bit of that as well. But look, private equity, what private equity is built for is to generate guarantee or generate profits, profitability. They want to make an investment within a number of years, they get a return. And the reason that these deals are typically built around media rights is they are the most secure a range of revenues that are going to be created by the leagues. So typically they are built in and around those broadcast rights that do exist. Uh, so so that, in simple terms, private equity wants to make sure that they invest in something that they're going to get a guaranteed or definite return in. Uh, CVC in particular, they've made a number of investments, uh, as mentioned before, in, in a good half a dozen plus sports properties, also even in the IPL, where they spent something like $700 million on a franchise team there. So they're making lots of, let's call them bets, to see where they can generate the most return on their investment on a macro level. So all these all these, all these, these bets are out there with the hope that they're going to get a guaranteed minimum return um, over the course um, of those investments. And typically, they won't be looking at the 50-year return like that La Liga deal. That is the framework of that deal for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why it's 50 years, but that's what it is. They'll be looking for those returns to come back uh, in a much shorter period of time. And what's quite exciting for private equity now to come into sports is they've got a fairly blank canvas. You know, private equity has only really been making moves into the sports industry at the top tier over the last few years. You know, we've seen new rules being relaxed, those rules being relaxed in the NBA, and I think the NFL is making some moves in that space as well. 
and this sort of development of a commercial entity for sports has only been something that's relatively in its infancy. Uh, the Volleyball World one is, a, again, another example where CVC invested into developing a commercial business specifically built around professionalizing, commercializing the sports property. So it's not investing into the governance and, and, and so, so forth. They're just in there to build build a sports property that makes a return on their investment. So I don't know if that answers the question per se, but that is that is it's pretty clear cut as to why. And CVC are obviously the ones leading leading this wave of investment from private equity. And they've got a great track record, um, really led by what they did with Formula One. And they sold that to Liberty Media a number of years ago. So people are, you know, I think quite excited about if CVC are making these moves, then it's likely they're on to something. And interestingly, with a League One deal, as I mentioned before, there's something like 10 equity, 10 PE firms in the running to acquire that commercial, that, that investment in the commercial arm of League Earn. So yeah, really interesting to see where, where this goes and how much more investment into other major sports properties will we continue to see uh, with these sort of developments of commercial arms popping up left, right and center these days. For me, what, what's, what's interesting, particularly with CVCs, they're obviously active movers in this space. And as you say, you know, we've talked about League Un is one deal, La Liga is another deal that are, are similar in the sense that they're both talking about sort of media rights. Uh, but at the same time, they are very different to each other. They're not the same. Uh, you've also got the deal with Volleyball World, which is seemingly completely different from what's going on with the two deals just mentioned before. But there's also what they're doing within the sport of rugby. So I think for me, what's interesting is, you know, what CVC, what their broader strategy is, you know, are they just seeing opportunities? Are, are they being strategic about what they choose to invest in and what particular sectors they invest in within those sports? Um, it's just very interesting to see how they break down those different investments and the different strategies or different approaches they're taking to each one of those uh, different investments with those leagues. Yeah, look, it's going to be interesting to see where it does go. I think what's been interesting so far has been, you know, in Volleyball World's example, it's a much smaller investment. We're talking, you know, if the reports are 100 to 300 million, depending on who you ask. It sounds like from the, the podcast we did with Motor uh, a couple of weeks ago that um, they're largely saying, hey, here's the money. This is the plan we've agreed. Go go forth and make, and deliver on this plan and, and make our money work for us. Um, in other instances... You know, I don't necessarily see why the why some of those leagues really need that cash injection, other than to sort out some of the finances of La Liga and League Un, which are in in trouble. Um, whereas for something like uh, volleyball, there's a real opportunity to develop something which has there's not been a commercial commercial first framework in place for that sport. So uh, I think for many, private equity provides a unique opportunity, and most people think that sports has a long way to go to be professionalized and run like an optimal business operation in many instances. So this cash injection will hopefully lead to more of that happening. Time will tell whether that actually happens or whether this money that's coming in will just end up filling up the pockets of the owners and leagues for now uh, and whether that's actually going to lead to anything um, exciting in the future will, will remain to be seen. An interesting takeaway from that that I it's I know it's not directly related to broadcast and streaming, but it's almost, you know, you were talking about the professionalization of sports, and I think that's actually kind of a bit of a sore subject here, at least within the UK where we're based, uh, is around this, you say professionalization of sports, but I'd argue it's the Americanization of sports. You start thinking about, you know, talking about teams like Man United or Arsenal, 
there's a lot of fans that are upset because they don't feel like these American owners are necessarily running the clubs because of their love for the club or for the fans. They're simply doing it just to make as much money out of it. So I get that's a slightly different topic, but I think it it is just an interesting little point talking about the professionalization of sports, but really, you know, you know, in America, I guess we're just used to the franchise model that, you know, we're just sort of used to, but I'm not sure everyone in Europe uh, has quite embraced that same uh, mentality. No, and look, it's yeah, there was actually a recent study came out. I think it was over the weekend where uh, I think it was I, I think it's Nick Harris is the the journalist uh, at Sporting Intel is his Twitter handle, and he published uh, I think it was in the Mail or, or one of the other major publishing houses, and it was basically a poll a survey of all the fan bases across Premier League clubs. And the ones that were at the very bottom of the fan approval rating was the Glazers in Manchester United. And the main reason for that is they're seen as taking money out of the club. You know, they, they funded it with debts. They haven't actually put a lot of any real money in and they're just getting returns off the back of it. And no fans want to see that. Private equity, uh, you know, the, 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 the dream they're selling here is that they're going to use this injection of money to make their sport better or make their team better. In a league level, in a prof- at the top tier sports property like the NBA or La Liga or Premier League, that dream doesn't necessarily seem like it's it's realistic to actually like disrupt the way their favourite sports are already being served. Um, like if you're a supporter of a team that wants to become a champion, yeah, okay, I'll buy that dream. You know, you're selling me. You said that, that sounds exciting to me, but in this instance, it, it's a different. It's a different game altogether. I think fans won't really understand it. We don't really know what this private equity investment is going to achieve for the sports um, that they are investing in now, particularly at the top tier. For tier two, tier three, like sports properties, it makes loads of sense because sports needs to be professionalized. But these ones that are already raking in billions of dollars in in revenues, it's it's not as clear cut as to what the real benefits are going to be seen. Uh, at least from the fans' perspective, anyway. Moving along, we had last week our technology editor here at Sports for Media, Steve McCaskill, wrote an opinion piece that uh, had a couple of different takes that that were quite interesting. And one of them is something we've touched on before, and we thought we'd have a little conversation, elaborate a little bit on it. Uh, but one of his the questions that he asked the audience was, "Should every sport have a NFL red zone package attached to it?" Now, for me, I'm incredibly biased being a major NFL fan, which won't surprise viewers here who have heard me speak quite a lot about my Cincinnati Bengals. But for anyone that's maybe not aware of the NFL red zone package, essentially the way it works is basically it will jump from game to game to game to game as scores happen or as teams are about to score. So basically, instead of sitting there and watching one game from, you know, start to finish, you might be watching different games all the way throughout. Sometimes, you know, they'll have four or six games up on the screen at the same time, depending on where their scores. There's no commercials. Um, quite famously, the, the host says, you know, welcome to the next eight hours of commercial-free football. Uh, you know, for me, it's the perfect thing. You know, I'm very invested in my fantasy sports, so I can sit there and, you know, the setup in my household on a Sunday game day, on the big screen, I've got the Cincinnati Bengals, and then on my laptop off to the side, I've got Red Zone, you know, just to track and make sure that that my fantasy team is doing everything I needed to do to win that week. So for me, I'm, I'm absolutely a massive fan of, you know, every sport possible, figuring out a way to have a Red Zone type of package. Yeah, the Red Zone is is a great is a great offering and 
particularly for um, for a league or for a league or a sports property that has multiple games going on at the same time, it is a great way to really immerse yourself into the sport. Like you, you don't really have time to leisurely watch. Uh, if you're watching Red Zone, you're kind of really immersed into what's going on because there's so much going on. And particularly, it complements obviously so well both betting and fantasy sports. Basically, you know, you'll be able to see what's going on. You're able to make bets in real time or near real time. Um, and, and obviously, the integration for, for fans on around fantasy is, is massive. And that's where it's worked so well for the NFL. Now, whether it can work for other sports and all variations of a red zone type, type solution does remain to be seen. Obviously, you know, practically thinking of other sports like a, a basketball, where there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a basket every 10 seconds, 20 seconds, depending on how quickly they're playing. Would a red zone solution work for that? I only think if you really staggered the game so that they, they sort of started finishing at different times, maybe that, you know, because the fourth quarter is obviously where all the action really happens. And that's, that's even what, you know, the NBA tried to sell as part of their, as part of their league pass was, was the up, you know, the sell access just to the fourth quarter, because that's really where, where all the action does take place. Uh, the example that I, I think we've either discussed on the podcast or discussed at an event was the idea of the, they call it Gillette Super Saturday. For those that haven't seen it in the UK, because they have, oh yeah, we must have talked about it on the the blackout um, edition of the podcast. So on at 3pm in the UK, no games are allowed to be broadcast on TV. So what they do instead is they show a bunch of old white men sitting around the table, talking and describing to you what's happening in the games you can't watch. Uh, and it's actually really, really popular. Uh, and actually, it would be a really transferable format to a red zone if they ever remove those blackout rules in the UK where those uh, games that they're talking about could actually be watched live or watched live legally, I should say, because they are able to watch via pirated channels, which is a whole nother conversation altogether. So anyway, long story short, uh, red zone is, a, is an incredible format for the NFL. Everyone, I think, agrees that. The purists would say actually that it does negatively impact how you watch a game, um, you know, for your own team, and you, that's that's the beauty of red zone. Is you can choose whether or not you want to stay and watch that, or you want to watch your own team play. I watch it a little bit, but I also like watching just games through to get a real feel for what's going on. The Premier League is built for it, I think, is it, uh, and also any other football league that has games going on at the same time is absolutely built for a red zone solution but it is a big investment uh, and i don't really think you could see a lot of other sports pulling it off unless they really configured themselves to be servicing uh, that red zone solution whereas uh, fortunately the nfl is really built for it well you kind of touched on you know sort of two important points there at least two things that stuck out to me nick you know um, involving the premier league uh, being perfect for it as well as fantasy sports for me you know, I'm pretty much, you know, I'll be candid with everybody here. I'm pretty addicted to fantasy sports. So for me, the whole red zone package and what it can mean for other sports is just, it's, it's gold dust, you know, for me to say it. And for me, I think fantasy sports is, you know, I don't think it, everyone necessarily thinks of it as a small thing, but I certainly also don't think we've quite 
is an industry fully capitalized on the opportunity for it. Uh, I was doing some research prior to this. ESPN said that they've got 40 million users actively playing uh, fantasy football. And, you know, that's not including, you know, the NFL's got its own platform. Um, I'm slowly moving my leagues over to Sleeper, which is kind of a startup company uh, doing fantasy sports. And, you know, that's just football. We're not talking about the NBA. We're not talking about baseball. Um, And, you know, for me, I think the Premier League, um, as a marketing tool could certainly do a, a better job with with the FPL that they've got. Now they've got a little over 8 million users on there. But I know for a fact, I have friends in America that are only watching the Premier League because I've roped them into uh, an FPL league with myself. And I think fantasy sports, you know, not only the, the audience there, it's an incredibly high affinity. It's a group of people that are going to be tuned in every week, super high engagement. It's also just a marketing tool to expand into markets. You know, sports can be complicated, but I have friends that have learned American football or at least gotten more into it just simply based off the fact of doing it through fantasy, it gave them a better understanding of like what the stats actually mean, why they're important. And I definitely think that's probably something that's not quite uh, still been fully realized, the the potential that it actually has. And like I said, I think FPL with the Premier League could certainly do a lot more to not only from a, 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 a gameplay user experience, but also simply just in the way it produces content around it. You know, the U.S. is just so much content around fantasy and gambling. I don't think I think Europe's actually still relatively behind on that. Now, one thing I will say, though, if anyone wants to take my money, and I've been saying this for a while now, and I still haven't seen it. So if you're listening to this and you can do it, please figure it out because I will just hand you my money over. If someone can put together an OTT offering that will allow me to select the players from my team and you can create a highlight package for me of just those players, take my money. I don't care about all the other players. What I want to know is how are my players doing? And as soon as someone comes up with some sort of solution to allow me to do that, like I said, I will just sign over a blank check. Yeah, well, we had Daniel Schickman from WSC on the pod a few weeks back, and that's I, I asked him whether they're going to have a direct-to-consumer offering, and his answer was no, uh, basically. But maybe the NFL might create something like that in the future. It's I think there's a massive market market for it. And just I think quickly on your fantasy f- sports point, you are 100% right. In fact, that's how I got into following. You know, I'm Australian and I was growing up in Australia with very little access and one of my friends pushed me into fantasy sports and I got sort of hooked that way. Uh, and now I really am sort of in, into it quite a lot because it's really easy to follow. The Americans are so good at producing all the, the shoulder content around it, not to mention fantasy. But it all links to the topic we keep hearing about is gamification. Uh, and personalization, really, because you're getting a personalized experience as a fantasy sports uh, participant because you have your own team and you want to follow your own players doing whatever they do. And whether it's red zone or whatever, you're going to watch things a little bit differently based on what needs you have to, to follow on. So, yeah, uh, red zone, uh, huge success. And could every sport have it? Uh, I think everyone wants to have something that has the success of that. And we have talked a little bit about what Gen Z is looking for. And it's, it's in short, not looking for a two-hour, three-hour, four-hour match. They're looking for something with more impact and punch uh, and interactiveness. So something that ser- serves them uh, and solves that problem, like a red zone, is what every sports does need. So what I'm going to try to do, Nick, in a roundabout way is, you know, make this a nice transition into the interview after this, where we have David Levy. And for those that don't know, David Levy is also the chairman at Genius Sports. 
But one of the things Genius Sport is obviously well known for in the industry, particularly around the broadcast side of things, is their their use of data, particularly within the the gambling side of sports, the betting side of sports. So, you know, without me spending too much more time going into it, Nick, and, you know, trying to connect some of what his role is and what he's doing at Genius with what some of what we just talked about in the fantasy sports world, how about you just give us a little bit more of uh, what we have in store for the interview? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so the interview we have this week, uh, I was really excited to be able to speak with David Levy, who, uh, for those would know him from his days as president of Turner Broadcasting or Turner Networks, um, and also of Turner Sports. And he had a career of something like 30 years with that organization. Uh, he's now the chairman of the recently spacked or gone public Genius Sports. Uh, and he's also acting as an advisor for some of the biggest investors in sports at the moment in Rain Group and uh, Arctos Sports Group in the US. So David has always had his fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the industry, uh, whether it's sports media or just sports generally. Uh, and so it was really a privilege to be able to speak to him and get his take on what's going on right across the industry. His focus, as you'll hear, is massively on the impact that betting has no wonder he's working with Genius As a, when you start hearing him talk about his thoughts there because Genius, obviously what um, their business is built around is getting access to data from organizations like the NFL, which they have a, a huge deal in place with now, which we talk about, and then distributing those data rights to a variety of betting, betting businesses to, to monetize, which doesn't sound sexy, but actually it's 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 really at the heart of what where all the growth is right now. And he talks a lot about impersonalization and, and, and the role betting is going to play in really ramping up the fan uh, experience. And also just what trends to keep an eye out for in the sports media landscape. At the end, he brings up something which I think will be really interesting, particularly around betting and the moves that might make in in acquiring media rights or even acquiring media businesses in the future. So it's a really interesting listen. And yeah, I think for everyone who's listening now, you should keep listening because I think it's well worth uh, another hour or so of your time. But look, that's probably enough of me. Uh, I'm going to hand off to me talking to David Levy, chairman of Genius Sports. So, David, you joined Genius Sports uh, around March 2021, just before the completion of the SPAC merger to take Genius public. Talk us through the moment of you joining Genius and, and why did you decide to join them in the first place? That's a great question. Um, I actually met Mark Locke uh, through my relationship um, and I'm a senior advisor at Rain. And Rain at the time was helped guiding Mark on a few projects that he was working on and one of them was he looked he was looking to possibly do some kind of commercial arrangement or thinking about doing something in the digital space uh in the sports digital space and originally i had purchased a a, a company called bleacher report for turner broadcasting and he was interested in what i thought about bleacher and some other digital assets and so we were talking about a lot of different things in the business and uh because one of the entities that Genius has is an ad tech business. I was also very influential and very um, thought provoking around the sports betting business in that I had a lot of uh, interest in it. Um, and I've done some personal investments in, in the sports betting business. So we got to talking about that as well. And in the midst of that conversation, he said, listen, would you have any interest in being a chairman of Genius Sports? 
he goes, I don't actually, you know, do the interviews and things of that nature, but I certainly am on the board and I think you'd be a good asset to the company. And uh, I went through the process through the board and uh, was lucky enough to be um, appointed chairman of uh, Genius Sports. So I think my interest really fell into, into one big, into two big places. One, I have a very strong passion around sports betting and what I think sports betting does to the content business and the business that I was in for 35 years, as well as the ad tech business that, that Genius um, has as well. So it kind of felt like a nice fit for me. Um, and I joined the company, as you said, right before we went public uh, through a SPAC. So I'm curious, um, bringing, bringing you in as chairman, someone with an incredible uh bevy of experience, earmarked by the 30 plus years with Turner, sitting at the heart of the sports media industry. What's your responsibility though, day to day? Are you you involved with uh, taking more of a top level view, interacting between your mark and and the the wider board? Or what's the kind of your day, well, your your main remit there uh, look like? You know, I mean, listen, I have to do what's right for the shareholders, right? What's right for the company and for the shareholders. That's my main priority is to make sure that we give value back to our shareholders. Within that, obviously, I, I help set and, and, and guide in strategy and thinking for our CEO with Mark, uh, as well as hold board sessions for the entire board group and make sure you know we think about where we want to go and next steps and guidance of where we think the business is heading. Obviously, introductions into the media space for Mark. The, the U.S. market is just opening up. My relationships over 35 years with sports leagues, as well as networks, as well as media companies, is very helpful to Mark and to Genius, uh, which then leads back, obviously, to our shareholders. So, you know, my role is, is not to run the day-to-day business. That, that's not what I do, um, but to help set strategy and help guide strategy and, and, and budgets and, and things of that nature is, is really my main role and, and to make sure that we add value back to our shareholders. Sure. And, and genius, when, if you'd ask someone, uh, I wouldn't say in the street, I'd say someone in the industry, uh, what genius sports are, that they're widely seen as a data business, but obviously they have a lot of different adjacent areas that they work in. Um, so could you just talk us through all those different aspects of what genius uh, do to service uh, the, the industry, whether it be for the sports or media side? Yeah. So that's a great question and this is what you know we're much bigger than what you know i think people think about genius i mean obviously sports data is core to our overall business and how we license that that live data streams from the leagues provide products and services then to sports books and get a piece of every sports bet moving forward with the leagues that we are associated with but we recently has purchased a company called second spectrum which helps in gamification and personalization um, for the video content and the media content that's out there in the space. I don't know if you saw um, the Super Bowl this year and and the Nickelodeon feed that was done around the Super Bowl uh, and the gamification that you saw with the slime and things of that nature when someone scored a touchdown. That's all done through Second Spectrum. And uh, we have relationships with the NBA um, we have a relationship with MLS, not just in gamification, but also for data for their teams, for their athletes. Uh, how do we record that data? We also have relationships with media companies, like with March Madness uh, and CBS, uh, with Turner and with the NBA, and how and how when you're watching an NBA game and you're seeing those stats pop up 
around Steph Curry's three pointers and things of that nature. So we're making the telecast more relevant, more interesting. We're we're making uh, obviously sports betting, in game betting to move forward. That there's more live in game betting than there is. We also have another company called FanHub, which if you're in states uh, and arenas that are not in gambling approved states and regions, um, you can still figure out gamification. You can still do fantasy type things. You can still do prop bets for prizes or for uh, awards uh, and things of that nature. So we have a company like that. And then we're also in the ad tech business where, you know, the easy example for me to give is sports books provide us with their advertising dollars with all the data that we have and the relationships we have with, with inventory, we can do referrals back to the sports books for them to find new prospects uh, and, and new uh, customers um, for, their, for their betting apps. But we can also take that into non-betting uh, advertisers who want real-time data that would help them have uh, relationships with their consumers and putting up advertising that is in real time and real information. So for example, the score is tied 28-28, would you like to deliver a pizza now? You know, and, and something of that nature. So just having this live data set can provide not just for sports books, but also for regular advertisers. It's interesting you say all that because um, we were just in New York, actually, uh, your home um, hometown for the OTT USA event we we ran and at City Field. And one of the things that, well, a number of the things that came up was A, advertising and B, gamification. We're, we're, we're basically, the, the core conversation points for the industry about maximizing ad dollars and how to improve that experience. It seems like you guys are really leaning into that heavily. And it's only an area that's only really at the early stages. It, it is. And, and one word that we have to also use, because gamification I know is used and, and you know, obviously advertising, but personalization um, is also going to be very key. What, what, what I may want to watch and how I want to watch it may be very different than you may want to watch and how you want to watch it. I may want different camera angles. I may want to focus only on a certain player whether you know an NBA player or, or, or uh, a certain quarterback or football player. Those camera angles, uh, golf is a better example. Like, you know, most of the time, you know, golf is only following the leaderboard, uh, the top five or six golfers. But let's say you have some kind of um, thrill to watch somebody who is actually in last place, but you may have a bet on him or you may have him in a fantasy league uh, and you may want to see him play. You know, you're starting to see that golf tournaments, you know, the, the PGA Tour is allowing cameras on all golfers now uh, and covering the entire telecast. I mean, one of the reasons um, golf is, is an interesting sport to talk through because, you know, probably only 8% of golf is really shown on television. You know, where, where in any other sport you see 100% of it, right? But there is times where there are just people that they don't televise because they're not part of the leaderboard. Uh, and that kind of personalization will come through for golf faster than maybe some of the other sports. Uh, but other way to personalize it is through, you know, maybe who, who announces your sportscasters. You may want to hear, I think one of the most unique things that come out recently with ESPN and the Manning cam was you, you could listen to Eli and, and uh, Peyton Manning uh, watch a game and feeling like they're in their home, uh, you know, their home living room. 
those are all kind of things that I think are leading to personalization. So I, I think gamification as well as personalization are going to be key in the future. Absolutely. Actually, I'm curious what, what we're talking about. I get your take on the Manning cast because it's one of those innovations that seem to get the whole industry talking, right? As a, as a wow, this is a, a disruptive um, way of presenting content, a new way, um, bringing in talent and so forth to uh, really enhance the experience and provide a different perspective and a different, a different experience completely to the traditional broadcast. The numbers, though, when I looked at some of the broadcast numbers, you know, sometimes people forget the scale, right? Uh, the, the percentage of people actually watching the Manning cast isn't anywhere near the, the full the full spectrum of the ratings. It's not like 90% of people are now turning over to Manning cast. It's a proportion of it. And that's, what I think, your point about personalization is it's important that you have something that serves a, per, a chunk of audience that really wants that experience and keep doing that to the other sectors, I suppose, to make sure they're getting what they want out of it. Not, it's not for everyone, but it's about providing what each sort of sec sector or each persona wants to to experience when watching the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were probably Turner, and during my days at Turner, we, we were at the forefront of this. We ended up doing special telecasts around March Madness in the uh, semifinals and final games. We actually had what we called homies, so if it was Duke versus Syracuse versus Michigan versus, you know, Ohio State, we had the main telecast, which had Jim Nance and, uh, you know, uh, Grant Hill and Bill Rafferty doing the normal, what you would see every, you know, uh, year during March Madness. But then on, that was on, let's say on CBS, for example, but then on TBS and TNT, we had what we called the Homer telecast. So we had, you know, if Ohio State was playing Michigan, we would uh, bring in either their local play-by-play uh, -play guy or a, a former athlete that used to play there and have them describe the game from their perspective, but as their fans of Ohio State or their fans of, of Michigan. Now, were those ratings anywhere near the ratings of the normal telecast? No, but in aggregate, you know, that's something that we were trying to personalize for people that may want to hear the Michigan perspective of that game. Uh, we caused a lot of confusion because sometimes people would, what, what I would call um, collision viewing, that they would turn on TBS just because that's where they thought March Madness would be. And they'd be hearing this one-sided telecast for a certain college. And they would be, you know, through Twitter saying, what is Turner doing? How could they be? And no matter how many times we publicized that these were Homer games, we still got some negative reaction until the audience, you know, two or three years down the road got used to these type of telecasts. So, you know, I think we were early at it, but this is all about aggregation and personalization, meaning, you know, would we have gotten a, did, did we actually get any incremental audience that we wouldn't have gotten? Um, I think we did. Um, I think people tuned into those stations and enjoyed those stations. And they maybe enjoyed it better than watching Jim Nance call it like a normal telecast. So I think this is just the start of where we're heading into. You know, we were also, um, Turner was very uh, advanced and, and, and focused on different camera angles. We had mosaics early on with the NBA. We had when Kobe was playing in the NBA uh, we had Kobe cams, we had LeBron cams uh, that only focused on a digital perspective around that particular athlete. And so providing options and, person and, and personalization is still, I, as you said, early, 
And also what's very early and you're starting to see it more kind of move into the telecast now is is odds and betting and 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 all the other features that you're seeing, you know, you know, used to be almost not allowed uh to have any of those kind of odds and things take place in pregame and postgame shows. And now it kind of seems like it's it's almost in every one. So um there was sort of a hands-off and now there's sort of a hands-on in that area. You know, Turner um with me uh and a few other executives that were uh prominent about the developing it was the, you know, the first entry I think was the match that we did with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson back in 2018. It was a pay-per-view event, but it was all about gambling. I mean, ultimately we wanted uh, Tiger and Phil to gamble on every hole. Um, what was, you know, who was going to get the longest drive closest to the pin up and down, who's going to make a putt. I mean, I remember when Tiger and Phil did their um, press conference two days before uh, the actual event, you know, Phil Mickelson said, I'm going to bet you, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to make a birdie uh, on the first hole. And Tiger turned around and said, okay, I'll press that up. I don't, I'll bet. I don't think you can do it for 200,000. He missed the putt, but it was that kind of conversation that I think is going to happen as you sort of gamify and allow sports betting to enter into the space. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll dig into that more in a second. But before we move away from the NFL side of things, I'd be curious to to talk a little bit about the Genius NFL deal, which basically kicked off uh, around the time that Genius went public and, and also you you joined. How important was it to get that deal done, especially at the beginning of, of its journey as, as a public business? I think it was key. Uh, in fact, I was a big proponent uh, going through my interview process as chairman, I thought it was a very, very important asset for us to acquire these rights because I knew, you know, the U.S. was going to be a very, very big market uh, and still growing. I mean, we don't even have Texas and California and Florida hasn't approved mobile gaming yet, but these are big states that I think are going to, you know, you saw what happened in New York, even with the 51% tax rate and everything else, you know, it grew, you know, substantial. I think it did over $2 billion in one week when it was announced that they could actually do sports betting through mobile apps. So I think this is here to stay. I mean, I'm a big proponent of, of this particular cycle. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you place a $5 bet on a sport, you're 98% more likely to watch. If you're 98% more likely to watch, that means you're engaged. If you're engaged, that means ratings are going to go up. If ratings go up, that means advertising dollars go up. If advertising dollars go up, that means media rights go up. If media rights go up, franchise values go up. If franchise values go up, league rights around merchandising and, and uh, licensing will also go up. And so that's all uh, arrows pointing up if you go back to a $5 bet. And so... We recognize that whether we were at Turner or whether you were at a league. And so sports betting to me and getting the NFL, you asked the question, if there is the holy grail of where I think the most betting and the most action is going to happen and the most, you know, you know, highest rated show on television, I mean, the top 78 shows of the top 100 shows are NFL related programming. I thought it was pretty important for Genius to get that. I thought it was good for shareholders as well as I thought it was good for the company. 
a triple win. So uh, numbers are reported, and I'm not sure if you can give us any a lot of this or not, but around six years, $120 million plus some equity a stake in the business, which was reported. I'm curious, when looking at the opportunity, you, you've sort of given a, an insight there already into how you're looking at making it count, right? It's a big, it's a, it's a big investment to win, uh, win a deal like this. It's a win, but then you've got to make it work for you. Outside of the, the obvious betting relationships that Genius is, is building and developing, what are other, some, of, some of the other areas where you can really drive revenue and value for Genius out of that investment in the NFL side? Yeah, well, I, I don't really go into the financial side of that. I, I will say that Genius, you know, we don't do any deals that we don't think are going to be profitable. So, you know, we obviously believe this will and we know it will, you know, over our six year cycle. You know, the key for us, I think, and it's been and it's been said, is that over in Europe, 80% of the bets are done in game, in game betting uh, versus what they call pre and post, which is before the game actually starts. In, in the US, uh, it's almost the opposite. It's almost um, 80% before the game uh, actually takes place and, and, and 20% while it's while it's happening. The more and more that that moves toward the European model, um, which I think it will, and so does Genius. And we're already starting to see new products and services that come into that, whether you're doing parlays within the game itself or whether the odds change as the game moves on as far as the teams, who's winning and who's losing, uh, as well as whether you're going to you know, uh, bet on balls and strikes or uh, touchdowns or runs or passes. All of that is developing as we speak. And I think you know, we're, we're at the, you know, just in the early stages but as that moves on, this becomes far more profitable because we get a better percentage of, of the bet as more and more become in-game betting because of that live data feed that we have and, 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 and so forth. So I think for us, it's about creating more products and goods and services to keep pushing forward this in-game betting. And, you know, with the data that we have with the NFL and more ad tech type businesses to use that. Uh, for our advertisers and for an, and our sports books who are looking for referrals and things of that nature. As more and more states open up, which I think they will, you know, just because of the budgets that are, you know, the, the, the tax implications that allow these states to help fund their other budgets that they need to do within state by state, I, I think you're going to see this be a very, very profitable opportunity for Genius. I'm interested. You mentioned uh, the comparison with Europe and US, and that's an often uh, often an angle a lot of the betting industry looks at. Uh, I'm Australian, and I'm used to looking at. I grew up in an Australian market, which is is been heavily mature in the, the betting space as well. We've seen over in Europe um, a lot of restrictions now in how betting is being allowed to market themselves in in sports uh, and sports broadcasts. Do you have any concerns? I suppose that that might be something that not now, I'd say maybe five to 10 years down the line, you might see that that happen in the US or do you think you're only at the early stages with this sort of growth? I think and- it's too early to tell. I mean, you know, I think each state, which rightfully so, whether, you know, what I saw it in the, the alcohol business when alcohol was allowed to start advertising on television, um, there was also, they needed to have X percentage to, to concerns about drinking and drinking and driving and all the things that possibly alcohol could have some ramifications in. And so as you see with sports betting, there are also uh, a X percentage that have to talk about, you know, not over betting and, and that, you know, and things of that nature. So the concern side, as well as the betting side, 
and and I think that will still stay in place. And then I think we'll have to adapt if if needs if need be. I think it's way too early to to, to see what would happen in Australia versus happens in the U.S. Um, so the answer is we'll be we'll have to adjust if that happens. And I don't think it's going to affect the day to day business. I mean, ultimately, people who go to bars and drink, you know, have to drink responsibly. And people who want to bet and bet on apps have to bet responsibly. Uh, I think the key word is responsible. And um, that will continue to happen today, tomorrow, and years to come. Um, so taking a step back into sort of more the sports broadcasting and media rights world, I would say, I'm not going to say your bread and butter, given your, your years at, at Turner uh, and investing in some of the major the major sports rights in the world and in the US in particular. How are you seeing it from your lens? What's happening in that marketplace now? Is it, you know, we've seen obviously the growth and proliferation of streaming services, particularly over the last two years with all the major sports properties, splicing and dicing their sports rights to, uh, you know, maximize the media rights they're investing in. Um, Do you have any particular takes on just what's happening right now in that space? Yeah. So, Ted Turner said to me this many, many, many years ago uh, in the 70s and 80s, and it's still relevant today. Content is king. And, you know, sports is the ultimate drama on television and it's appointment viewing. It's the last appointment viewing left on TV other than news. Um, you don't know the outcome um, and you have a built in fan base. You know, in my time at Turner, in my last few years, as I ran uh, all the networks, all the programming, not just sports, but all of it, you know, a scripted drama today because of the streaming services are very, very expensive. The competitive to get the best script, to get the best writers, to get the best directors, to get the best showrunners, the average hour that it costs to run an hour of a scripted programming, you know, went 10 times more than it was only a prior years before that. So, uh, and there's no guarantee once you spend that money um, that it's going to be successful. And, you know, in the old media space that I call broadcast and cable television and the new media space, the streaming businesses, the old space is, is judged on a different report card. The report card are ratings and you get that report card every day. Every other, you know, that night the show ran, the next day, you know what the ratings were. And, you know, we survived on how big those ratings were. But, you know, viewing habits have completely changed. And there's so many different alternatives for the consumer itself and streaming service just being one of them. But what about, you know, uh, video games and, and, and other things that people are now using or, or Facebook and Google or TikTok, well, their, their attention you know, the, 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 the attention span as well as their viewing habits have completely changed. So sports provides that last destination programming for that old report card, um, but uh, which is tele, you know, broadcast and cable. And we know there's a built-in fan base. So, you, you know, while you'll see some shows in broadcast television and cable, you know, maybe only make it a year, maybe two years, you know, the NBA can have, you know, ups and downs, but ultimately, you know what an NBA game is going to rate. You know what an NFL game is going to rate. Yeah, they may drop 10% one year and then grow 10% the next year, depending on which teams are in the playoffs or if there is a superstar. So it's pretty consistent. And 
and it's pretty reliable. Uh, and that's why you see um, sports continue to have increases in media rights. The, the second thing that increases media rights is, you know, there's more distribution platforms that want it. Uh, I think you're going to start seeing, and, and that's good for, you know, for the leagues, is you're starting to see um, streaming services pick up live sporting rights. Amazon picked up Thursday night football. You just saw that MLB is now on Apple TV on Friday nights with double headers. I anticipate that HBO Max, you know, at some point will have NHL hockey uh, and possibly NBA. And of course, you have ESPN Plus with what they have and with with top ranked boxing and some of their other football assets and so forth and so on. So the streaming services are now picking up these live sports because they want signups to subscription. It's no different than when the mobile business started acquiring sports rights or when the digital business, when that was new, acquiring sports rights. But what I do see is there used to be, they used to carve out these rights. The leagues used to say, I'm gonna sell my TV rights to Turner. I'm gonna sell my digital rights to blank. I'm gonna sell my mobile rights to blank and, and so forth. I think those days are gonna you know, end sooner rather than later. We, we did a, my last deal with March Madness you know, we combined all those rights because the media companies now are in all those businesses. You know, way back when, you know, maybe they weren't in the digital business or maybe they weren't in the mobile business. But, you know, in today, these media companies are on all platforms and, and including streaming. And so I think you saw in the new NFL deals, um, whether it be CBS or NBC or Fox, they all got rights to allow them to stream at some point. I don't have you know, access to their contracts, but what we all heard was streaming rights were included, right? And so I think that's going to be what's happening contractually now with media companies is that there's no way you can bifurcate out these different platforms anymore because then they'd be competing with each other. Interesting, because uh, one of the challenges I've I've been saying for a long time, and uh, I think everyone's pretty much in consensus, is you, you talked about the opportunities for additional distribution that do exist across the industry, but fragmentation of sports rights is what's uh, I would say, depending on what sort of level of sports fan you are, really impact your potential reach if you don't know which of any one of say six broadcasters to go to to watch the sport of choice if you want to say watch an NFL match or an NBA match etc so I'm just curious you you sort of mentioned there that you guys looked at it more about let's let's aggregate as much of that or consolidate become the home of March Madness and, and also I think you guys obviously had a relationship with the NBA when you're at Turner where I think you you were um, if I remember correctly driving their league pass offering if I remember if I correct yeah we had a 50 50 um, uh, joint venture partnership um, with the NBA around their digital assets uh, at the time I was there. And, and really that was a David Stern and then later Adam Silver, you know, having a vision that, you know, how do you, how do you do R and D? I mean, we, we spent exorbitant amount of money on CNN and how to make CNN a digital asset on a global basis and how to, you know, um, develop cartoon network on a global basis and so forth and so on. And, you know, they realized that what they have is great IP but they don't really have a whole media infrastructure. And could we form a partnership in some way that we would help build out their digital assets, do their R&D, you know, you know, uh, stream their, their different, their different uh, around the world, their different games around the world. And so it was a great relationship 
with the NBA. We also had a digital relationship with NASCAR and we had a digital relationship with, you know, with our deal with March Madness. We, we ran March Madness on demand. That was a Turner based product and a very successful one. But it isn't the problem that isn't the problem there, David, um, in terms of becoming a home for any sport. Let's say it's March Madness, but it could be the NBA, the NFL, if any sport wanted to take on, sorry, any broadcaster wanted to take on that challenge of becoming, say, the home of a major league sport, the problem would be obviously wastage, right? You wouldn't be able to have a lot of that core content available through your main channels. Uh, and the, uh, you obviously would have it well, available well, we did, through your certain Through my consumer. main channels or through the NBA? So, sorry, in, in not necessarily in your example, but the whole, the holistic example of becoming a home for any any sport, becoming a single sort of um, broadcast partner alongside a single sports property, um, that just becomes a challenging situation in my, my eyes is because of, you're going to have a lot of content that can't be seen unless you go down the direct-to-consumer angle. And therefore, as a broadcaster, I can't imagine you can drive as much value out of that product as you could if you could use it. Um, you would sort of sell, if you're a, a rights holder, you would sell those rights to other uh, broadcasters who could then get the most value out of it. But again, all these leagues manage their own networks, right? So the NFL has the NFL network, Major League Baseball has Major League NHL. So there's always a way to find this content. And, and of course, there's YouTube and, and all, the, all, the, all the other digital platforms that have access to this content. I, I, I don't think people need... I don't think we'll have a challenge finding any content anymore. You know, it's out there. The question is who controls that content and who monetizes that content, I think is important. And that's what I'm talking about where a company like Turner, uh, use March Madness just because of the example, you know, we push it out on Twitter. We push it out on Snapchat, Instagram. Uh, it's, you know, that content is everywhere. It's just managed and controlled by Turner, even though it's on all these different platforms. It just gives us the opportunity that nobody's selling against us uh, in the marketplace. But we want to be where the eyeballs are. You never want to stop where the eyeballs are. So, um, so back to Turner for a second. I mean, so you you left in 2019, and since then, or around then, um, they've gone through a couple of sets of uh, transactions and acquisitions and, and hands um, since you left. Where do you see, uh, the, I guess, where Turner sits in this new Warner Discovery merger? Listen, I, I'm not there. I, I'm not, I don't know the, 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 the executives that are in key positions anymore. It's turned over a few times. Listen, I, I think they're going to have to play just like any other. I'll, I'll talk just as a media company. They're going to have to be aggressive with HBO Max. I don't know what they're going to do with that channel. I'm, I'm, I'm reading and hearing that they're going to launch a, an advertising version of it. I think that's smart. It, because, you know, from an advertising perspective, you know, you're losing your impressions on one side. Can you gain them on the other side? Meaning if their cable channels are decreasing in ratings and can they find inventory in other places? So they're also going to have Discovery Plus, another streaming service. Did that, do the two converge? I don't know. That's going to be obviously David Zasloff's uh, direction of what he believes. The reports are as of today that they're going to merge the two together. Uh, it, but they it haven't worked out what the to brand provide would be. more content and not have competing competing channels. But you know, I, I think it's too early for me to even comment on. It. I don't. I don't know the people there anymore. I know they recently signed uh, a hockey deal, which obviously they believe in sports, which is a good thing because I do believe sports continues to to drive ratings and drive subscribers uh, and viewership as well and advertisers. So. 
too early for me to tell on where they're heading. I, I, I believe that you know the competitive landscape is continuing to change, although what comes around goes around. I was talking to somebody the other night and you know, here he is buying all these streaming services now. He goes, you know, I have to buy Paramount to see my Yellowstone. I have to buy Peacock to watch this. I have to buy Netflix to watch this. I have to buy Amazon to watch this. And so, you know, the cable bundle used to be the easy thing. I bought cable, I got 500 channels and I got it all. Then we bifurcated this all out into streaming services and now people have to buy all the streaming services. And as the sports properties land in certain places, if you want to watch Friday night baseball and there's a team that you want to watch, you may have to sign up for Apple Plus TV now. Uh, and if you want to watch Thursday night football, you may have to be an Amazon Prime uh, fan, uh, you know, and sign up for Amazon Prime. So you're just going to see people signing up for different services. So looking back at your time at Turner, are there any things uh, or achievements or milestones that really stand out for you over your time there that you were able to to execute. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for asking. Um, you know, there there are a few things I always think back on, and and how lucky I was to be involved in in those particular conversations, and how proud I am of the company and what we achieved in those. One of them, which we spoke a little bit about already, was March Madness. I think my our relationship that we had, my relationship, my personal relationship with Sean McManus and with CBS. I think that. That particular deal will never be replicated. Um, that was two different cultures. CBS had a very, very different culture in the sports department versus Turner. Um, you know, uh, and to try to meld those cultures together was a project in itself. And I think um, when Sean and I first started having conversations, I spoke about early on at saying that you know two things. One is that this was going to be a 50-50 partnership. We were not going to do a cable deal and a broadcast deal, which typically had done in the marketplace, meaning the cable would get the early rounds and the, and the, uh, and the broadcast networks would get the, the finals and the semifinals and maybe even the quarterfinals. Um, that was not going to work in our company. We, we, had, we had moved far past that uh, with our MBA relationships uh, and, so, and, and some of our other relationships that we had with other sports um, at the time. And, you know, Sean agreed to that. Uh, we also said that we would focus on the consumer first. You know, we, you know, when we when we made a decision, it wasn't what's best for CBS or what was best for Turner. It, we, we we sat in every meeting and said, "Is this going to be best for the consumer?" Meaning, where should Jim Nance do his games? If it was a T, you know, it didn't matter whether it was TBS or CBS or where would we put Reggie Miller or or should Charles Barkley? be only on TBS. No, the, 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 the halftime show and the pre and post game shows that included, you know, Charles and Ernie and Kenny, which were signature uh, uh, talent for the Turner organization. We had them running on whatever network. It didn't matter. So um, putting that deal together and having a true 50-50 partnership with CBS, meaning we shared talent, we shared production trucks, we shared ad sales. I don't think that's been replicated ever ever since, and I don't think we'll ever will be, um, because you know uh, of the competitive nature of where we are in the media business. But we both had needs, and from a Turner perspective, it was the first time that we were ever able to crown a champion. Most of our sports, whether it be the NBA that we had all the way to the conference finals, we had the All Star games, 
um, we never got to crown a champion. The, the, the finals were always on ABC or an NBC telecast. So this was our first opportunity to, to actually crown a champion in a sport, which was March Madness. And we, we did, and we, and we alternated every other year with CBS of, you know, the finals and the semifinals. So truly a landmark deal for Turner to be able to crown a champion, but also a landmark deal in the industry, which taking these two different type of cultures and really forming a true 50-50 partnership, uh, which is still running today. And that, that deal doesn't end till 2032. So even the length of that deal was probably uh, historic because uh, you don't see those kind of deals in that kind of length. The other thing at Turner that I think one of the things we needed very, in order to compete in this marketplace, and when I mean compete, compete for sports rights, Turner didn't have a 24-7 destination. ESPN had it, NBC, Fox, when they had, they all had digital assets that ESPN, you know, dot com, right? And so Turner didn't have that. We were, we were going out acquiring these rights, whether it be NBA or, or NASCAR or, you know, or college football, you know, anything that we went after, PGA championships, we had no sports destination 24 seven. So when we purchased Bleacher Report, it was because we wanted a 24 uh, seven, seven days a week um, destination for our, for our content that we was acquiring, for our advertisers and for our messaging. And so that was a key asset. I think what we bought back in 2012, and I have some great stories of maybe the company itself didn't believe that we should do that uh, at the time, but it turns out it was probably one of the best assets that we acquired for allowing us to push out content uh, outside the television landscape uh, and do it on a 24 seven basis. So I think those, I mean, I could tell stories upon stories, but those two, and of course, our NBA deals, our NBA relationship, our relationship with Adam Silver, I still have today, uh, even though I left Turner, I think started because of that. And of course, the last thing I would talk about is Major League Baseball. I haven't mentioned it, but you know, this goes back to Ted buying the Atlanta Braves uh, in the 70s. We've had such a long relationship with MLB through the Turner years, and then our postseason deal that we had, um, that we that we finally got some postseason baseball, and, and you know dropped our Braves and became more of a national presence. I think was also key uh, for Turner's growth. I get a sense that when you're talking through all those things, there's a lot to do with partnerships. I guess relationships as well. There's a a little bit of trust that has to go along in these some of these big deals, as well as obviously the financial commitment that goes that goes alongside of it. Then as a broadcaster, how do you, you know, how does it, how does it sit with you? You know, are you seeing this as a partnership or are you seeing it as, Hey, we're buying a service from some of these sports properties when you're buying media rights? hundred percent partnership. I mean, you know, I used to have this saying, you know, you, you sit for days negotiating months possibly. Um, and then you spent hours upon hours, you know, making sure the contract reads right. And of course, you know, everybody does a contract you know, you have to develop a contract to have like nuclear war, right? What happens if this this whole thing blows up? Who gets what? What do they get? And once you get through all that, I never want to see the contract again. I, I, I want to have that relationship with my partner. We should discuss these things as partners, not as, you know, this says subparagraph three, section two, that I'm allowed to do this. You know, you don't want to be able, you don't want to pull out the contract. You want to have a relationship with the leagues. You want to build and grow this partnership and grow the league's assets. 
yes, you may be renting them, but at the time you guys are partners and that's the most important thing. And we ran Turner that way. I certainly did is it's all about relationships and, and, and give and takes. And the leagues were very, very good. Major League Baseball, Rob Manford always understood that he needed to grow his fan base and how could we help with Bleacher Report and how could we help in certain assets. My relationship with Adam Silver through our digital assets as well as our, you know, our studio shows and and his and his owners that wanted access to this this type of um, uh, of, of distribution platforms. You know, it, it really boils down to yes, you have to negotiate. Yes, you have to pay. But I don't think the thing works without a good, strong partnership from both sides. So we're almost out of time, David, but just a quick one or two more questions and we'll wrap there. Uh, I'm curious, um, you talked about the media rights side and largely we're seeing a lot more money in the media rights space, but most of that money is going to the top tier sports properties. So the NFLs and the NBAs, because they're the ones that as I like to say, move the needle for broadcasters, whether it be for subscribers or audiences or advertisers, etc. Do you think the knock-on effect is that the tier two and three sports properties might be left a little high and dry to expect revenues from those traditional means and will have to look at going more direct to consumer to drive revenue from their media rights? Yeah. You know, I always um, think about this as each sport needs to define the definition of success, right? If your definition of success is I want to get NFL type media rights, I, I think that's going to be a little awkward, <laughs> you know, and that's not really a definition of success. You know, um, the barrier of entry, you know, it used to be that all these sports had to beg and plead and borrow and do time buys to get on broadcast television. But the barrier of entry today is zero. You can just put up your sports onto a website uh, and stream day one. And so, you know, if you're, I'll make this up, but if you're an arm wrestling fan, you can find arm wrestling. Now, it may not be a lot to the bottom line, but you're going to have an accumulated fan base. And if you're a diehard, you know, like to like, you know, bicycling, you, you're going to find, you're going to find this content, right? And so, I think you have to define the definition of success because the barrier entry is zero. Now the question is, what are my rights are going to be and what do I hold back and what's, what's someone willing to pay for it? I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is how sports betting changes that. You know, I've seen a lot of sports betting on ping pong. Does that mean ping pong is going to become more popular? Well, certainly from an engagement perspective, it will, right? And, you know, if people start betting on lacrosse, will lacrosse start becoming more popular? You know, again, if you bet on a sporting event, you're 95% more likely to watch. So I think, you know, you're starting to see that some of these tier two, tier three, depending on how sports betting moves into that, that area, you may see them grow and, and have more engagement in those sports. And then, as I said, the barrier of entry is, is almost zero. So um, you can now put up content that maybe no one saw in the past and all of a sudden find new fans um, and what kind of content and where you put that content and who supports that content. So I, I, I don't think tier two and tier three are going to be left high and dry. I think there's going to be a redefining of what the definition of success are those are. And they could change based on engagement. 
but there's so many new ways and there's and again there's so many new platforms look at all of these streaming platforms they're going to need content right I, one of the greatest examples and i think people are starting to to recognize this and i saw golf jump on it as well but formula one racing that show and i don't remember the title of the show that was on netflix but Dr. it Spot, it, yeah. it re-energized formula one racing which was way down the totem pole and now all of a sudden auto racing has become of interest and florida is going to have a race now um in miami and there's also a race in austin texas and all of a sudden the u.s has got more interest in formula one than it had for many many years and it was cost of a tv show well guess what golf now is doing a show called inside the ropes because golf wants to start getting more wider and deeper in their fan base possibly and they saw what happened with with formula one and, and i'll give boxing some credit you know because it was hbo my old company that did it but that 24 7 show which was basically leading up to the the championship fight on that saturday but for those four or five days prior to that fight they did you know be, you know inside the rope so to speak around the fighters and became more interesting you know the olympics had done that for years so you know if you start producing shows around arm wrestling or any of these other what do you call tier two or tier three sports i think there's going to be more interest and there's certainly more opportunities to find those sports that you couldn't have done in years past Definitely more opportunities. And last question for you, just quickly. In terms of, we've talked a lot about genius and we talked about betting quite a bit. Is there anything that you think people should be keeping an eye out for, whether it is for genius or for the betting industry more widely in, in the sports space? What's what's next for either of either of the either of them in this space? You know, listen. I think it boils down. We 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 used words like gamification and personalization early on in this um, conversation. Uh, I think engagement and fandom are going to be very, very key. And what I mean by that is I, I think not so in the distant future, you're going to see sports books own media companies or become media companies or media companies buying sports books. They're just not going to be separate. I don't see that you would go to your DraftKings app and just be able to bet and not watch live content there. And I don't think media companies want you to leave and go to another sports book. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I see some kind of merger. I see some kind of consolidation in that. And I think that, as I said, sports books will either be media companies or media companies will buy sports books. Somewhere in that, it's going to happen in a short amount of time. There is never a dull day in the sports media industry. Uh, David Levy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. 